Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 44 through 49. It says, On the outside of the inner gateway, there were two chambers in the inner court, one at the side of the north gate facing south, the other at the side of the south gate facing north. And he said to me, This chamber that faces south is for the priests which have charge of the temple, and the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to him. And he measured the court, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, a square, and the altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple, and he measured the jams of the vestibule, five cubits on either side, and the breadth of the gate was fourteen cubits, and the side walls of the gate were three cubits on either side. The length of the vestibule was 20 cubits and the breadth 12 cubits, and people would go up to it by 10 steps. And there were pillars beside the jams, one on either side. Now, we ended last session with a brief look at uh, the section of the temple area where the priests were to slaughter the sacrifices for the burnt offering, the guilt offering, and the sin offering. Go back to chapter 40, verse 39. Let me just kind of remind you of that. Verse 39 says, And in the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. Tonight, we're going to see that the temple complex also has chambers, as we just read, has, temple, has chambers for the priests to live in as they serve at the temple or at the altar. Now, we're going to look more closely at why there are certain roles for the Zadokites and, and certain roles for the Levites later on in our study. You saw here that there's chambers that are for the Levites and other cha chambers that are for the Zadokites, uh, the descendants of Zadok. And we won't get into it tonight. Later in our study, meaning not tonight, we'll get into the specifics of why. There are actual real biblical reasons why in the millennial kingdom, the Levites will have some responsibilities in the temple area, but the most important responsibilities of serving the Lord at the altar are going to be done by the, Z the descendants of Zadok. And the scripture actually talks about why that is. We won't get to that tonight. But when we left off last week, we had also been... Uh, looking closely at Hebrews chapter 10 to see some clues as to why there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. So go ahead and turn back to a Hebrews chapter 10. Let me reread to you verses 1 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And then we'll kind of take some time to break that section down to begin to deal with what we're going to be dealing with tonight is why are there sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, uh, which has been a bugaboo for many people over the years. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, the law, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can't make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book." Now, when he, Jesus, said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these were offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declared the Lord. I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, wherever, wherefore, sorry, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So let's take some time to kind of break this section of Scripture down, because as we do so, it'll really help us to begin to find out why there is sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom. And actually, I think the Scripture actually begins to show us, and hopefully by the end of the night, you're like, I don't have a problem with sacrifice in the Millennial Kingdom anymore. Because for years, people have wrestled with it. Of course, there's lots of folks that don't believe there is a Millennial Kingdom. They think that the Kingdom's now, and when Jesus comes back, everything's over, and they don't understand that He's coming literally to the earth to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And those, though, that do believe in the Millennial Kingdom, they've had this wrestling match, because people who try to argue against the Millennial Kingdom say, well, if that's literally true, that what this talking about in Ezekiel is going to happen, why are there sacrifices? Because Jesus was the final sacrifice for sins. So if Jesus was the final sacrifice for sins, why are there sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom? And people that believe in the Millennial Kingdom have wrestled with that, and they've most often said, we don't know. But if you remember where we left off last week, was Jesus, was Jesus the final sacrifice for sins? No, he was the only sacrifice for sins. So by saying that he was the final sacrifice for sins is assuming that there were other sacrifices for sins, but then Jesus made the final one. There was, as you just say, go back to chapter 10. It says the law is a shadow of Christ's sacrifice and therefore cannot take away sins. It points to what Jesus was going to do, but over and over through this section in verses 1 through 4 and also uh, in verse 11, uh, look again at verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Back to chapter, one, chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. All right? And, and so I want you to understand, did the sacrificial system take away sins before Jesus died? Never did. Its purpose never, ever, ever was to take away sins. So when we think about the fact that Jesus was the sacrifice for sin, not the final, the only sacrifice for sins, we shouldn't have a problem with sacrifices in the millennial kingdom if we understand, first and foremost, that in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system had a very important purpose, which we're going to get to tonight, and it was never to take away sins. It was, well, look closely at verse 3. But in these sacrifices as a reminder every year, it was a shadow of the realities, not the realities themselves. So it was a pointing to what Jesus was going to do and a reminder that their sins hadn't been removed. That the sacrificial system never removed their, their sin. Oh, and there's something else. What was the law's purpose? Go ahead. 
The point is to the fact that we need a savior. We, the law's purpose was to show you you couldn't keep it. All right? So let me kind of explain to you what I mean by that. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, look at verses 19 through 24. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, before we go any further, when it says whatever the law says, it's, it, it, it says to those who are under the law. Is it talking here? Is he talking here then about just the Jews who are under the law? Or is he also talking about the Gentiles? Now, before you answer, think it through. All unbelievers. Remember, go back to Romans chapter 2 and look at verse 12. For all have sinned. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul has been laying out in the book of Romans this treatise of the fact that God is going to judge sin. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. And no Jew is innocent. Oh, the Jews are guilty. The Gentiles are guilty as well. That even though they didn't have the law of God, God wrote his law in their hearts and they realize that they're lawbreakers. You've heard me talk to you this, about this before. Every one of us is born with a sense of right and wrong. Now, what you might consider right and wrong may be different from what I consider right and wrong. But every one of us have a sense of what we think is right and wrong. Have you ever gone against what you in your heart thought was right or wrong? Have you ever gone against it? Of course, every one of us. And whether you heard the law of God, the scripture said God has revealed to you. It's a law to yourself that you're a lawbreaker. Go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So when it talks about under the law, is it talking about Jews or Gentiles? Yes, both. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Don't miss that. It's the law, actually, that reveals to us the fact that we're sinners. The MRI doesn't give you cancer. What does the MRI do? It reveals the cancer that's already there. You see what I'm saying? All right, now keep reading. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love this. Paul says, look, all along salvation has been through God's provision for man's sin. Through, and we know now on this side of the cross that it was Jesus who was that provision for our sin. Now, so in the Old Testament, when the sacrificial system was set up by God, one of the reasons why God did it was to point to what Jesus was going to do. But more than that, it was also a reminder of the fact that they had sins that continually needed to be cleansed because otherwise they would have stopped doing it. And on top of that, it was also to show them how sinful they were because when the law said thou shalt not, they realized I've done it again. And they really hopefully start to realize their sinfulness. 
But it goes even deeper than that. Go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, look at verses 7 through 13. Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, did that which was good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, let me kind of take some time to help you understand what Paul's saying here. He said, not, not only does the law reveal sin, because if you measure yourself up against it, you realize you can't keep it. That's how we've always seen it. We look at the law and we look at our life and we realize, man, I'm not able to keep the law. It's deeper than that. Let me show you what I mean. Put a bookmark here in Romans 7 and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at verse 56. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians Paul, in the midst of his long treatise about the resurrection of the dead and how we're going to be changed and the moment and twinkling of the eye, he makes an interesting statement here. Actually, God through him does in verse 56 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says this. It says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What gives power to sin? The law. What fuels sin is the law. And that's what Paul, Paul was saying here. He said, look, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. And then all this covetousness started rising up in me. We all have a problem, folks, and it's sin. We were born with it. It's been passed on to us from Adam and Eve. But here's the deal. Sometimes... It isn't even until someone says you can't do something that we even think about doing it. You find yourself walking down a sidewalk and you probably wouldn't even think about walking on someone's grass. But if they had a bunch of signs that says, keep off my grass, I dare you, don't touch my. Now, all of a sudden, what are you going to want to do? It's like I hadn't even thought about stepping on your grass. But now that you've made all these, you can't do it. Everything in you now wants to step on the grass just to prove you can. And that's what happens with the law. It's not just I look at my life and I look at the law and my life doesn't match up with the law's requirements. That's only part of it. When the law says thou shalt not, that sin that's in all of us now all of a sudden wants to. It fuels sin. Paul said, again, I didn't even know what coveting was till the law said don't covet. And it, but now, that's why he was dealing with the question. So is the law bad because it made me sin? No, the law is holy and righteous and good. But God also knew that because of the fact that we naturally would think, I'm a pretty good person. He needed to do something to reveal the problem that's within us. You talk to most people on the street today, and if you said, hey, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Most of them would say, I think so. 
I'm a pretty good person. Then we know from Scripture there's no one righteous, not even one. All are guilty before God. But what are they? Well, let me ask you this question. Does God want lost people to sin more or to sin less? Isn't that crazy? God wants lost people to sin more. You say, Jim, where do you get that? Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 20 and 21. Romans chapter 5, look at verses 20 and 21. It says, now the law came, the law came in to what? Increase what? Isn't that amazing? The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through, Jesus, through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, in the Old Testament... What was the purpose of the law, the sacrificial system and the law of God? Well, it was to point to what Jesus was going to do. It was a reminder of the fact that their sins haven't been covered because they had to be keep off, being offered. Otherwise, they would have stopped. It also was showing them their sinfulness as they measured their life against the law's demands. Because if we had met all that, we wouldn't need to do the sacrifices to get back in, 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 in right with the law. And on top of that, the law itself now fuels sin and makes that sinful nature in us come to life even more and more. So the Old Testament sacrificial system had a huge purpose to bring people to Christ. Now, that'll help us in a little bit. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to need to be patient with me because I'm going to show you tonight why even more that there are sacrificial sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And it's pretty cool when we get there but I have to keep laying a foundation. So you're going to think we're right about there to get the answer, and you won't get the answer yet. So just stick with me. I'll show you what I mean. Go back to, uh, to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 5 and following. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verses 5 and following. Consequently, the Hebrew writer says, when Christ came into the world, listen to what Jesus said. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added and said, I've come to do your will. Folks, listen closely to what I'm about to say to you. God never wanted the sacrificial system to replace a living, trusting relationship with him. In the Old Testament, and I'm going to show you from Scripture, God says this, he never, ever, ever wanted the sacrificial system to replace a living, walking, trusting relationship with him. It had a purpose, but they all put their faith in the sacrificial system to make them right before God. We did our sacrifices, we did our penance, we did our thing. And I'm going to show you from Scripture, that was never God's intention. His intention was that the sacrificial system would do those other things I already listed, point to Jesus, show them their sin, remind them of their sin, so on. But the Jews took it as, if I do these things, I can be right with God. And I'm going to show you from Scripture, that was never God's intention, and I'm going to show you from the Old Testament only. Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7, look at verses 21 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
He says, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I'll be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Listen to what God says. He says, if you remember, when I brought you as a nation out of Egypt, I never talked to you about sacrifices and burnt offerings at the beginning. All I said was, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Come walk with me. Do what I tell you, and it'll be well with you. It wasn't long after they got into the wilderness that God brought Moses up onto the mountain to talk to him. And while he's up there, the people down at the bottom of the mountain say, we don't know what happened to Moses. And what'd they do? They made a golden calf, one of the gods of out of Egypt, and they began to worship it. It was after that that God then sets up the sacrificial system and the law and all those things. Prior to that, he hadn't. Actually, God says, when I brought you out of Egypt, I never even talked to you about burnt offerings and sacrifices. I just said, I want to be your God. Why don't you be my people? Walk with me. Go to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, just one verse, verse 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, God says, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Let me read it to you again. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Go to Micah chapter 6. As you're turning to Micah chapter 6, look at verses 6 through 8. Let me kind of set the stage for you. In Micah chapter 6, where we're about to begin reading in verses 6 through 8, God has set up a courtroom scene for the nation of Israel, and he's the judge and the prosecuting attorney, and he has just declared them guilty. This is now the response of the people of Israel to the fact that God has said that they're guilty and worthy of punishment. So this is what they say in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Excuse me. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They, they start ramping it up. Does he want me to, to give a burnt offering or a sacrifice? Does he want me to give a calf a year old? Or maybe he wants 10,000 rivers of oil. Maybe he wants my firstborn. What does he want me to do to be right? What have I got to do to get right with God? Verse 8, God responds, he showed you and told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He said, I never intended the sacrificial system, which the law demanded. God gave it for a reason. I never intended it to replace your walking, living, trusting relationship with me. Actually, many times, and I won't have time to take you there, God says to the nation of Israel, your, your sacrifices are a waste of time. I'm not, even, I'm not even appreciating them. I'm not even paying attention to them because even though you're going through the motions of your sacrifices, your hearts aren't even there. Your hearts aren't there. In the book of Micah, he, I mean Malachi, he tells them, look, why are you offering me your blind animals and your lame animals? Would you even give your governor that? They were going through the motions. Weren't, their hearts weren't in it. And never did God intend the sacrificial system to replace that trust, living, walking relationship. Go to Psalm chapter 40. This might sound familiar to some of you. 
Psalm chapter 40. Hopefully it sounds familiar to all of you, because that means you've stayed awake for the first part of the study tonight. Psalm chapter 40, look at verses 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. For an offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Who's this? Who's talking here? This is Jesus. And what's Jesus? Remember how we read earlier in the book of Hebrews? Christ said when he came, he said, well, this is where he said it. And again, don't miss this. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is written in my heart. Go to Psalm 51. David got it. David was described as a man after what? God's own heart. Did you catch that? Listen to what David says when he realizes that he sinned with Bathsheba. Most people, when they had sinned like David did, would have run to, what sacrifices have I got to do? What things have I got to do to make it right? Thinking that that was going to make them okay with God. But David doesn't. Of course, he cries out and he knew he was sinful from his birth and all this stuff. But look at Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see it? David even realized, you don't want me to go sacrifice in order to make this right. You want my heart. You want my heart. Don't miss that. The sacrificial system was set up to reveal the nature of man's condition, the nature of man's heart, to drive them to a place where they would go and say, I need you. This isn't doing it for me. God, I've been going regularly at the Day of Atonement. God, I've been following all that you've said. I've been doing the sacrifices. Why do I not feel like I'm closer to you? Because it was never God's intention that those be what made the right with God. It was to get you ready for the ultimate and the only sacrifice and God's provision for sin. God was not saying that the sacrificial system was never to be done. Remember, the law commanded it, Hebrews 10, verse 8. But he wanted their hearts and not their actions. So why did God give the sacrificial system? Why will it again be in the millennial kingdom? You ready for the answer? Told you, it's not going to happen right away. As I put in my notes, hang on. We're not there yet. I actually found something in my study that I had never seen before. Jesus actually told us in the Gospels that the law would be with us until the new heaven and the new earth. Go to Matthew chapter 5. He actually, as you understand now God's full timeline of the fact that there's a millennial kingdom. He said that the law is going to be with us all the way until the new heaven and the new earth. In Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 17 through 20. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Did you catch that? When's the heaven and earth going to pass away? Is it before the millennial kingdom or after? After. So Jesus himself even said, during the millennial kingdom, there's going to be the law. But Jim, we're under grace and we're not under law, but under grace. Yes, I've been trying to tell you for a while. This church age thing, church age thing that we're a part of, it's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful thing we've been given. He's using it to show Israel who he is and to make them jealous. We've been given a tremendous gift to be in this age of grace. The law is still there and it's still doing its purpose. It's got a reason. And there's got a reason in the millennial kingdom as well, which we'll get to sometime tonight. The law and the sacrificial system during the millennial kingdom will be necessary for the humans who will be living during that time. And scripture shows us that during the millennial kingdom, nations of people will be coming to Jerusalem to be taught the law of God. So let me help you out a little bit here, start giving you a little information. Will there be humans alive on the earth who still have sin in them? Yes. Remember at the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be Jews. They're all going to know the Lord, but they're going to be human. The, the remnant that survives, they're going to come into the kingdom. And the Gentiles are all going to be gathered, and Jesus is going to judge them. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. When he says, you gave them water, and you visited them in prison, and you clothed them, and they're naked. And you've done it to the least of these, my brothers. You've done it unto me. He's not saying that we get into heaven by giving someone a glass of water. No, if you put that together with Joel 3, you'll see that at the end of the tribulation period, the humans that are survived of the Gentile nations will be gathered, and Jesus is going to judge them with how they treated Israel. Joel 3 says it very, very clearly. And if they were pro-Israel during that time and didn't take the mark of the beast... They will be granted righteousness to enter into the kingdom. They're still going to be human. They're going to be making babies. Their babies are going to have sin in them just like they did and do. And so part of what's going to be going on with the millennial kingdom and the sacrificial system is that there are still going to be humans who need to come to a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And God has chosen to go back to the law during that time to do it. He had planned all along that he would use the nation of Israel as his light to the world. They didn't do a good job. They totally misunderstood his purposes, walked in disobedience themselves, which he said he knew they would, and he's, I'm going to show you, he told them that was going to happen. But he also planned at the very end, after his church age time is done, takes us to be with him, he's going to finish with the nation of Israel. We've been studying it in detail in Ezekiel, and he's going to use them as a light to the world. Let me show you what I mean. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Look at verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6. God, way, way back before the nation of Israel even went into the promised land, laid out their whole history. And in chapter 30, he says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. All right? So here he's laid it out. Let me tell you, the nation of Israel, I've laid out for you your whole history of what's going to happen, and everything that I say is going to happen. You're going to do this, and I'm going to do that. You're going to do this, and I'm going to do that. But at the end, when you've been scattered to all the nations, you're going to remember all these things that I've told you, and I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to circumcise your hearts, and I'm going to bring you back into the land and prosper you more than you ever were before. Go to Micah chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 7. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It shall come, come to pass in the latter days that the, house, so that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. We studied this last week. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may what? Teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth. Do you see it? The law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, Jesus, shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day declares the Lord. I'll assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Did you see what he says though in the first couple of verses? Many nations shall come to Jerusalem that's going to be raised up and highest of everything else after that big earthquake we looked at last week. And they're going to say, come, let's go to Jerusalem that we can hear from the Lord himself and he can teach us his ways. And the law is going to go out from Jerusalem. Why is God wanting to have the law go out from Jerusalem in those days to the nations that are going to be coming to Jerusalem to hear from Jesus? Exactly. What's the law's purpose? It can't take away sin. It just is a reminder of their sin. And it's going to show them there when they measure it up against the law, they're going to realize it. And on top of that, the law is going to fuel the sin that's in them. And they're going to come to a realization, hopefully, of their need of Jesus. As you know, at the end of the millennial kingdom, there's going to be so many people that haven't come to faith in Christ that when Satan's loose from the pit, he's able to gather an innumerable army to come fight against Jesus in Jerusalem. Of course, Jesus is going to defeat him with the breath of his mouth all at once, and it'll be quickly over. And then the <coughs> excuse me, new heaven and the new earth will, will, will begin. But again... Part of what God's going to be doing in the millennial kingdom by setting up the sacrificial system again in the law is to, like he had intended before, use it to teach the world about who he is. Oh, it gets even better. Go to Zechariah chapter 8. And as I read this to you, I want you to be listening and asking yourself, is this happening now? In Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 23... And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. 
Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with his staff in his hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out, or for him who came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing." Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh uh, of Judah, seasons of joy, sorry, shall be to the house of Judah, seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take a hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Is that happening now? Of course not. Man, the world's fussing if we just say that Jerusalem is going to be the capital of Israel and the embassy should be there. But in this time, at this point, during the millennial kingdom, the nations are going to be saying to the Jew, God's there. Take us with you. We want to meet him. We want to get to know the Lord. And there's going to be a sacrificial system. Again. So why will there be sacrifices be necessary in the millennial kingdom? Okay, I'll tell you. Number one, to point to Jesus' sacrificial death after his crucifixion, just like it did before his resurrection and before his crucifixion. Remember how we've talked about it? When you take the Lord's Supper, what are you doing? You're remembering. And it, what does the bread represent? What does the cup represent? It re represents his body, his blood. You're remembering what he's done. You're not sacrificing him again. That would have never... There are some people, unfortunately, that think it makes them clean because they went and had Holy Communion or whatever. But does it make them clean if they've taken the Holy Sacrament? There are some people that take it every day. 
because they think they have to have it in order to be in a state of grace. But does it make them clean? No. In the same way, like we take the Lord's Supper to remember what Christ has done, part of what the sacrificial system is going to be doing is pointing back to the one who did this already. But there's more. There's another reason that God began to show me, which I can't wait to show you. I believe that another reason for, and there's way more than I have time to share with you, and there's lots of reasons I don't even understand yet. But I think another reason why there'll be a sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom is for the same reason that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Exactly. What? I had never put it together. But I want you to stick with me here. Go with me to John chapter 13. I found that there's a connection to Jesus washing his disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, look at verses 1 through 11. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but it is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. At this point, when Jesus washes their feet, first off, keep in mind that for years we've been taught that Jesus was teaching to serve one another. I don't believe that that's it. Now, does the Bible teach that we're to serve one another? Yes, in many places. But I don't believe Jesus was teaching service. You know why? Because he said to Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. Later you will. Peter thought Jesus was serving him. And Peter says, I'm not going to let you serve me. I should be serving you. you. You can't serve me. And Jesus says, you don't know what I'm doing right now. You think it's service, but it's not. It's something deeper than this. And he says, still, you're never washing my feet, Jesus. Jesus says, well, if you don't let me wash you, you get no part with me, no share. Well, what's his reaction? <laughs> give me a whole bath then. Wash, wax, rinse, give it all, you know. I'll take the undercoating even, all right. Jesus says, hang on. If you've already had a bath, you don't need another bath. You're already clean, except for your feet. And you are already clean, except the one guy in the room. He's not. You remember, Jesus had asked back in Matthew chapter 16, he said, who do men say that I am? And they listed all these different people. And then he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, because flesh and blood hasn't opened your eyes to this. My father's opened your eyes. And I say, now you're Peter. He had met him earlier. And he said, you one day will be Peter. At that moment, when he made his profession of his faith, he was declared righteous. You are that new creation now. You're Peter. 
So he had already been made clean. These disciples had already been declared righteous, yet Jesus washed their feet. Let me ask you a question. Are you, have you been made washed, have you been made clean through the blood of Jesus Christ? Then why do you need sanctification? That's what Jesus was teaching, by the way. The sanctification process. We've already been made righteous, yet we have to go through this process of sanctification throughout our time on the earth. Why do we need sanctification? Because we continue to sin. Does that mean you're not righteous in God's eyes? No. Does that mean you need another bath? No. Does it mean you need to be saved again? No. Listen closely. But the Bible says that when we walk in sin and we don't confess it, we don't give it to him to have him wash us. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit. Or in other words, we're not able to take full advantage of the intimate relationship that is available to us. And because of that uncleanness, we're not able to be really in his presence. He never leaves, but we don't get to enjoy the presence of the Lord, right? You all know what I'm talking about. If you're a Christian and you've walked in sin, you know how it feels. <laughs> It's miserable, isn't it? When you know you're in sin and you need to get it right with God. All the way through the Old Testament, there were sacrificial systems and systems set up for cleansing to, to, to teach what was holy and to make something holy and clean. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. That same passage we've been studying. Let's just read the next couple of verses right after verse 18. Look at verses 19 through 22. It just jumped off the page at me. After verses 1 through 18, he says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see it? It's not that you're just clean on the inside. There's some kind of an outward cleansing that allows us to be in his presence. A large part of the sacrificial system, like I said, was, was tied to the need of cleansing to clear the worshiper of contaminants. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to... Um, ah, I think I can do it. Let's go fast. Go to Ezekiel 43. Let's go to Ezekiel 43. You're going to see that in this temple complex that Jesus built... There's going to be a need to cleanse the altar before they can even offer sacrifices on the altar. Ezekiel 43, verses 18 through 27. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it. You shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering and it shall be burnt in the appoint, burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering and the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from their flock without blemish. 
You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as burnt offerings to the Lord. For seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for a sin offering, also a bull from the herd and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be provided. Seven days shall they, be, shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it, so, and so consecrate it. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord. Jump back to chapter 42. Look at just two verses, verses 13 and 14. Then he said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers opposite the yard are the holy chambers, where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall put the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter the holy place, they shall not go out of it into the outer court without laying there the garments in which they minister, for these are holy. They shall put on other garments before they go near to that which is for the, temp, for, for the people. So he said, look, as you know on your, on your piece of paper there, the picture of the temple area, there's the outer court and there's the inner court. When the priests are serving the Lord in the inner court, they're going to have holy garments. They can't wear those out into the inner court, outer court because they're going to have contact with the people and they'll become unclean. They have to leave those garments on the inner court. Then they can go out and hang out with the people. But then when they come on, and all the way through, there was this cleansing that had to happen so that anybody and everything could be in the presence of God. Folks, listen to me, and I'm going to show you from the Old Testament some more. God is so holy that even though we have been made clean, we still have the contaminants of the sin of this world. And even more so during the Millennial Kingdom when all these people are going to be coming up to the Lord to hear from the Lord there's going to need to be a cleansing so they can even be in his presence. Yes. Maybe not. The Jews who survived the remnant will have come to faith in Christ. They'll look on him whom they've pierced. The Jews have. The scripture doesn't fully teach us that the Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. Their righteousness definitely is tied a little bit to how they treated Israel. Now, there's a strong chance that the reason why they're even in the kingdom is because they have come to faith in Christ. Because they obviously haven't taken the mark of the beast. Otherwise, they would be damned. Uh, the fact that they would even be pro-Israel at that time when the whole world's against Israel and the Antichrist is might be that they actually are believers as well. But whether or not the ones that, we know the Jews that start in the millennial kingdom will be believers. The Gentiles, we don't know fully if they will automatically be believers. They just may be given enough righteousness to ever enter the kingdom. Now, even if they are saved and they all have faith in Christ, they're children, but they're also walking in this world and they need their feet washed. Well, let me give you another picture of it. Go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, the, uh, to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Then, of course, he said, I'm the God of your father and all that. He wasn't even allowed to even be in the presence of God, even talking to a bush, because the holiness of God, a part of what's going to be happening in the sacrificial system. Go with me to Joshua chapter 5. A part of what's going to be happening in the sacrificial system is going to be the need of a continual cleansing so that God can be in the presence of there's still sin, folks. It's going to be in the world during that time. That's why we still need the daily sanctification to be able to enjoy the full presence of the Lord. Joshua chapter 5. Look at verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? <laughs> I love the answer. And he said, no. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. And he worshiped and he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Folks, this is one of those theophanies we talked about last week. Remember, whenever people would fall down before an angel, the angel would always say, get up, get up, get up. I'm a servant of God just like you. But he fell down at the foot of this angel of the army of the Lord, and he worshiped. And the angel says, stay there, but take your shoes off. God is so holy. I want you to hear me. I think we need to be reminded ourselves as believers of the holiness of God. I think we have lost a little bit of the sense of awe. When he taught us in the template of prayer, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're holy. Part of the sacrificial system is, yes, going to be pointing to what Jesus has already done. Yes, it's going to be used as a reminder of the fact that there's still sin that has to be dealt with and they need to put their faith in Jesus. Yes, it's going to even fuel the, the sin nature in mankind. All those things that the law did before, it's going to do again. But I also think that another reason is because Jesus himself, God himself, is going to be there in the presence. And there needs to be this cleansing to be able to be in his presence because of the holiness of Jesus. He won't be like he was when he was a man and God, but he limited himself when he took on flesh. You remember how the scripture says he limited himself? At this point, he's going to be the fully glorified Remember how John, when he saw him on the Isle of Patmos, he turned around. He didn't say, hey, buddy, did he? He fell at his feet as though dead when he saw the glorified Jesus. So there's a whole lot more that we're going to be dealing with as we finish this study. Let me just lay some things out to give you a commercial for where we're going to be going. Not tonight. As we're going to see as we finish through chapter 48 of Ezekiel. I want to clarify something because I've heard preachers say something that I want you to see in just a little bit is not true. 
I don't want you to hear that the Old Testament sacrificial system and the law is going to be just like it was in the Old Testament. If I've said that, I want to be corrected right now. Because I'm going to have you see the specifics of Ezekiel are so specific that actually you're going to see that there's going to be some differences between how it was in the Old Testament and how it will be in the Millennial Kingdom. Actually, one of the passages we read tonight, we're going to come back to later on because there was something said in there that we're going to actually begin to study. But just listen. As we're going to see, the millennial system of sacrifices described by Ezekiel differs profoundly from the Aaronic system. This is not going to be simply a reinstitution of Mosaic Judaism. Dwight Pentecost, in his book called Things to Come, it's a big, thick book. Dwight Pentecost, in his book called Things to Come, points out that there will be no Ark of the Covenant in this temple. There's going to be no tables of the law. There's going to be no cherubim. There's going to be no mercy seat. There's going to be no veil. There's going to be no golden lampstand or a table of showbread in this temple like it was in the Old Testament. Does anybody have any idea why? There'll be no lampstand, showbread, mercy seat, veil. Anybody have any idea why those will be gone? Because all those things pointed to the real deal and he's going to be there. He's going to be there. He is the law. He is the, the light of the world, the seven spirits of God. He is the bread of life. All those things. And he, remember, the veil was his body. There's not going to be the same as it was. Instead of a high priest also, you're going to see, there's going to be a prince who has some royal or priestly powers who's going to be on duty. But he will neither be king nor high priest. I think, like we've been talking about, I think it's going to be David. The Levites will have fewer temple privileges, except for the sons of Zadok, who will serve as priests. We're going to deal with that later on as to why, but you're going to see that the sons of Zadok are, are of the family of Levi, but the rest of the Levites are not going to be allowed to do some of the things that only the, Zadok, the Zedekites are going to be able to do. The Feast of Pentecost is omitted. We'll deal with that when we get there. But you're going to see as we get to the end of this book, there's no Feast of Pentecost anymore. And the great day of atonement will not be, won't be celebrated. You remember how we read earlier this feast and that feast and the fourth feast and the third feast are going to be a time of celebration, but it doesn't mention all the feasts. It only lists certain ones. During the millennial kingdom, the day of atonement won't be celebrated and the feast of Pentecost won't be celebrated. Oh, and the daily evening sacrifice won't be during the millennial kingdom as well. You'll have to wait till we get there. I just share this with you to say there's still a whole lot more. So stick with me. Meditate on what we've wrestled with tonight. But I think it'll become even more and more clear as to why all these things as we keep letting the scripture speak. But God has a reason. And it's good. And it's holy. And it's going to be awesome. I think it helps us to realize that Jesus wasn't the final sacrifice. He was the only sacrifice. And so if there was a reason for sacrifices that never took away sins in the Old Testament, why wouldn't there be sacrifices that don't take away sins in the New Testament? You understand? I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.